Thanks, Cole, and uh, good day, everyone. Ben Gray is my name, one of the ministers here at All Saints, and uh, hopefully it's just today that we're back to this simplified, masked up, and subdued church, um, and we'll be back to normal next week to be praying for our leaders and our community, as Eric has just done. Um, we're in the middle of a series on the wondrous cross, considering the death of Jesus and what it achieves. It stands at the very heart of the Christian faith, at the very centre of history, at the very centre of all of God's plans and purposes for his world. Uh, I want to just offer you the opportunity to come and think a little bit more about that. If you're new to Christianity, if you're maybe still investigating and still unsure of where you stand with God, I'd like to invite you to come and spend some time with me doing uh, a short course, what we call Christianity Explored, where we look at the Gospel of Mark and we go to the heart of the Christian faith, that is the person, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. Uh, four sessions coming up in June. Uh, if you would like to be part of that, uh, particularly if you're new or visiting, if you're not quite sure where you're at with Jesus, or maybe you've been a Christian for a long, long time, uh, but you would like um, to think more about how to articulate your faith, Christianity Explored is a good way to do that as well. To whet your appetite, you can uh, grab a copy of Mark's Gospel, the one that we use in the course, see the extra questions and explanations in that. Uh, that might help you along as well. And there's some copies of this book called A Fresh Start, which again is a great, simple, very helpful explanation of what it means to be a Christian. Today we're thinking about uh, a big word, a significant uh, reality, uh, that is the topic of propitiation. Uh, Colin Buchanan, a beloved children's a uh, songwriter wrote a song called Big Worms, Big Words That End in Shun. Big words that end in shun teach us what God has done. Uh, big words, big words that end in shun. Propitiation is one of those words. I figure if we can teach little kids that word, uh, you and I can grasp it as well. Propitiation is all about the fact that when Jesus died on the cross as our substitute, he took upon himself and diverted away from us the just and holy wrath of God, his righteous anger at sin. That's what we're going to think about. Let's pray and ask for God's help. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank you so much for these short moments that we have together now to think about the most significant reality in all the universe, that Jesus died for us. Please help us to understand it rightly, not just to understand it, but to rely upon it and be changed forever because of it. And we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, I had a visitor come to my house on Tuesday and uh, they came into the kitchen to find me with a week's worth of morning teas on the counter and a Sharpie in my hand. Yep, I'm labelling the food. Uh, with five kids, you've got to be kidding yourself if you don't think we label the food. Uh, so there's fewer arguments to make sure everyone gets fed. 
the right amount uh, that no one misses out and uh, to try and reduce the number of times people say it's not fair or where is mine. It's one of the factors of a bigger family. The other factor is all the socks. There's just so many socks everywhere all the time. Um, it's, it's a little bit funny, but to think about the fairness of morning teas is a picture of the fact that we live in a moral world, that we care about justice and fairness. We're constantly confronted with what's right and wrong and we experience the desire inside ourselves and in our community, the desire for justice. Stitched into the very fabric of how God made the universe all the way down to morning teas and the very real or even perceived favouritism of parents. Justice is a big issue in our world. And while morning teas might sound a little bit trivial, we know that our desire for justice our pursuit of justice, our failure to achieve justice runs a lot deeper than the trivia of morning teas. One of the slogans of those demonstrating for racial justice in America is no justice, no peace. Uh, you can take that slogan a, a, a variety of ways. You can take it aggressively as in we won't let there be peace, but we'll protest and unrest and uh, disrupt until there's justice. Or it can be taken more receptively. We can't experience peace. We won't know peace in our communities and in our lives while we don't experience justice in our communities and in our lives. It's a deep pursuit it is a right desire that comes from the fact that God is a God of justice and he has created a moral world where we're meant to care about things that are fair and good and right and just. But the reality is that our communities and our lives to greater and lesser extents don't experience peace because justice is just so elusive. Justice is miscarried. Justice is denied because each of us and our communities are crooked and are sinful and are broken and are incapable of perfectly living out or ensuring what is perfectly right and good and just. And it's easy to look out there at what is unjust and to shake our fists and to hold up placards and demonstrate and disrupt which might be good and proper. But it's also true, isn't it, that the injustice and the brokenness and the lack of peace comes from in here as well. That not just our communities but each of us are inconsistent at best when it comes to treating all people with equal dignity and worth and each of us are thoroughly consistent at setting aside the glory of God as our shared purpose and the reason for being in this world. And so the Bible reminds us of an important truth that is meant to be good news for the world. 
that God, the God of justice, who created in your heart that desire, that good desire for things to be fair and right and equitable, the God of the universe is just and he is righteous and he will hold the world to account. That is good news, isn't it? In a world where justice is miscarried and justice is just so elusive and that the peace of knowing justice is just, it evades each of our lives and our communities. It is good news, isn't it? To know that there is a God who is just, who is righteous, who is holy, and who promises to hold the world and each of us to account. That one day evil and injustice will be done away with forever when he sets the world to rights. The problem is, how will the good and righteous and holy and perfectly just God end evil and injustice forever without ending me forever? As I'm caught up in the sinfulness of the world and of my own heart, as I experience injustice and perpetrate it in this world, That is the problem of God's righteousness and his perfect justice. And the answer to that profound and most important question comes at the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, where God both righteously judges sin and provides rescue and forgiveness for sinners. And how he does that is in the death of his son by which Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Taking upon himself and turning away from us God's righteous, perfect and holy justice, his judgment, his wrath at sin in order that God might declare us to be righteous when we don't deserve to be. When God might declare us not guilty when we're guilty and that one day when evil and injustice are done away with forever we might be found in Christ and know the forgiveness and eternal life that only he can bring the problem of God's righteousness of his wrath and of human sinfulness is established in the book of Romans Earlier on in Romans 1 to 3, the whole argument, but let me read to you these verses from chapter 1, which you might remember from our series in Romans. You can follow along on the screen. We read that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, 
but their thinking became futile, their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. That's a reminder of what we heard last week, isn't it? The heart of sin is that we substitute ourselves for God and that the heart of salvation is that God substitutes himself for us. It's a reminder that we're not just victims but perpetrators of sin and injustice. And so the problem that we've established that we know in our own hearts and our own lives and that the Bible tells us clearly, how will God judge with justice and give life and hope to sinners? Well, the grand answer to that comes at the cross of Christ. Uh, Have a look with me at Romans chapter 3, verse 21, where we see our first big question for today is, what do we need? And Romans 3, 21 tells us. There are three questions. What do we need? What does God provide? Why is it necessary? What do we need then? Romans 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Reinforces the point, doesn't it? All of us have sinned. There's no one who doesn't fit into that category except the Lord Jesus. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of his glory and therefore, as Ephesians 2 tells us, we all by nature are objects of God's wrath. But the gift, the grace of God that is freely given to us is that though we are unrighteous sinners deserving of judgment, by faith in Jesus, God justifies the guilty, the sinner, He justifies the the, the guilty sinner. That is, it's a picture of a law court where the judge declares a person not guilty. They are right. They are righteous. And for an infinitely holy, righteous and just God, the one who is the judge of all the earth, to declare guilty sinners innocent, How is that right? How is that just? How is that righteous? Well, the answer is there in what God provides in verse 25. What does God provide? In order that he might be just and righteous and declare righteous, guilty sinners like you and me. Verse 25, God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. Because the redemption, the the forgiveness, the justification that God gives guilty sinners, because it's free, because it's by grace, the only thing that you can do with it is receive it by faith can't earn it, you can't buy it, 
You can't make it yourself. You receive it by faith and the thing that you need to receive is the sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of Jesus' blood. Those three words, sacrifice of atonement, is our word propitiation. Right? But because it's such a big word that ends in shun, our translators have said, let's say sacrifice of atonement might be clearer. It's the propitiation where the wrath of God is satisfied in the death of Jesus and turned away from all who would put their trust in him. This isn't a new thing, remember, that Christ died according to the scriptures. It's the picture of Leviticus chapter 16 where the high priest would take the goat and would lay hands on the goat to represent the transfer of sin and judgment to the animal who would then die in the place of the sinners. While then another goat is ceremonially loaded up with sin and sent away into the wilderness, that's next week. That guilt and punish, punishment have been turned aside, removed, so that relationship with God can be restored and his holiness and righteousness maintained. One of the, the things that we really enjoyed in this, the, the big part of COVID and lockdown and all that stuff that we did 12 months ago was that Keith and Kristen Getty, uh, so Christian songwriters, started to do this thing called a family hymn sing. And so every Wednesday night we started joining in with them and their family hymn sing as they sang along from Nashville, Tennessee. Old hymns, new hymns are singing together of Christian truth from the Bible. Uh, one of their most famous song is In Christ Alone. And there's a line in In Christ Alone that says, and on the cross, when Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ I live. One of the great controversies, as that hymn has been translated in so many different languages and sung in churches all over the world for the last 20 years, one of the great controversies, so, so big that it's included in the Wikipedia page for the song, right, is that there are Christians around the world who want to get rid of that line about the wrath of God being laid on Jesus at the cross. Because it makes God sound vengeful and angry and violent. And the reason that doesn't sit comfortably sometimes is because we don't have a category for anger and judgment that isn't vindictive or unpredictable or inconsistent. Because that's how we are when we get angry. You know when you, you get angry and you're so red hot angry that you're just, you're barely making conscious decisions? Maybe you don't. <laughs> Maybe it's just me. You're barely making conscious decisions, let alone fair ones, right, when you're angry. And we can think that that's how God is in response to our sin. 
But God's anger is so different to ours. It is his settled, personal, proportionate opposition to all that is evil and unjust in this world, including our own sin. And it's driven by his holiness and his perfections, including his love. It's not separate to or inconsistent with his holy love. It's an expression of his holy love for him to be angry at the way sin destroys his good world and upturns his created order and rejects his rightful rule and and care and sets aside his glory. But even as he expresses his holy, proportionate, righteous anger at sin, he does so in love. And he does so in such a way as to provide for the forgiveness of sins and the hope of being restored in right relationship with him and spared from the eternal condemnation that our sin deserves. And this is the consistent testimony of the scriptures. This isn't something that's unique to this one verse. This is how Jesus understood his death on the cross. This is how the Bible consistently paints the character of God and reveals him to us. Have a look at these verses from that famous part of John's Gospel, John chapter 3. You can follow along on the screen. For God so loved the world, that's the starting point, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. Jesus didn't come on a condemnation mission, he came on a rescue mission, but to save the world through him. So whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that their deeds will be exposed. Whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that may be seen, may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. And the great conclusion to this, in verse 36 of John chapter 3, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. Jesus' death on the cross is a propitiation for our sins where God's wrath and condemnation at sin is turned away from us onto Jesus, that we might live. And it's all of grace, a free gift from God to be received by faith. When you hear about the righteous judgment of God and his wrath directed towards sin and sinners. The temptation, apart from dismissing it, the temptation might be, knowing the state of your own heart, to run and hide, 
And I want to encourage that response this morning. But not to run and hide from God, but to run and hide in him. Let him be the refuge and the rescue that he promises to be and that Jesus' death on the cross provided for us. I love the story of Augustus Toplady, partly because of his name. In 1763, escaping a violent storm by taking shelter in the crack of a rock. And he did us a great service because he wrote that great hymn, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, hide me now, my refuge be. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be for sin a double cure. Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Confronted with the truth of our own sinfulness, God's righteous anger at sin. We don't run and hide away from him, we run and hide in him. Run towards him. That's where life and refuge can be found. The only refuge from the coming wrath is in Jesus and his cross. The rock of ages cleft for us that provides refuge and rescue from God's coming wrath. That judgment that we long for where God will hold everyone to account and where evil and injustice will be finished how we long for that day. It's a great day, but a terrible day if you haven't found your refuge in Jesus and his death on the cross. Finally, why was it necessary? Verse 25, God did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. God remains just by dealing with sin, by punishing sin, by judging sin in Jesus, by saying that sin matters, Injustice matters. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. He doesn't close his eyes and say, don't worry about it. Wouldn't want to know a God like that. Instead, he says it's so big, it's so significant, it's so important that Jesus comes to die in our place, to righteously take the just judgment of God upon himself so that God can be the one who is just, he judges sin and evil and injustice. And he justifies, he declares righteous those who have faith in Jesus. J.R.I. Packer says that this displays God's justice in condemning and punishing sin, his mercy in pardoning and accepting sinners and his wisdom in exercising both attributes harmoniously together through Jesus. 
I think sometimes we wince at God's judgment because we don't want it to temper his love. But the Bible reminds us that God's justice and his love are seen together at the cross of Jesus where the wrath of God was satisfied in Jesus' death in our place. When we hear about God's justice and his judgment, his righteous anger against sin, I reckon one of the great fears that we have is what if he gets it wrong? What if he ends up sending innocent people to hell? The good person that I know, my friend who doesn't yet know Jesus, but is a nice person and does good things, what if God sends them to hell? What if he gets it wrong? And it's interesting, when you ask the question of the Bible, what if God gets it wrong? It's like the Bible looks back at you with this puzzled look on its face. Have you not met God in the pages of Scripture? He won't get it wrong. The Bible's response to you when you say, what if he gets it wrong? It says, no, 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 we're asking a different question. The right question to ask, given the rightness, the perfection, the justice of God's judgment at sin, the question to ask is, how can guilty sinners be saved? How can God justify the ungodly, the wicked, like you and me? And the answer is, in the perfect justice and the holy love of Jesus' death on the cross. That's how. And that's where we find shelter and refuge and rescue from the wrath that is to come. I had a friend who spent a week in Kathmandu and uh, spent a week walking out of his apartment each day looking for Everest. (laughs) And yet, you know how when you travel and you can't predict things, it was a cloudy, foggy week. And each day comes out, I can't see a thing. And he's kind of looking at the horizon for the peak of Everest. And as he keeps looking day after day after day, finally on the last day the cloud lifted and he realised that he'd been looking at the horizon like this and he should have been looking like this. (laughs) It's so much bigger than you could imagine. When we struggle to get our brains around the justice, the judgment, the salvation that Jesus' death on the cross means, the answer isn't to to make it smaller to fit in our pocket and to fit in our tiny brains. The answer is I mustn't be looking and seeing it as big as it truly is. And it's to sit and to keep looking 
at God's word and his character and at what he says about his death on the cross to see that he's more holy than you could ever imagine, that his glory is greater than you could ever imagine, that the cross is bigger than you could ever imagine. And instead of asking God to shrink the cross to fit your brain, asking God to expand your brain to fit the cross. That you would know the wonder of Jesus' death in your place where he turned aside God's wrath, his righteous judgment, he took it for you. That he might be just, but he might also justify you as you place your faith in Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father, please help us not to long for the cross to be smaller, to fit our tiny brains, but help us to know in our inner being just how high and how wide and how long and how deep is the love of Christ at the cross that we might know it and treasure it and find our refuge in him. Amen.